Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are talking about the Umbrella Academy. The TV adaptation literally just dropped on Netflix this past Friday. So we're very timely, very relevant. We are very early on a Saturday recording this. <laughs> yes, people should appreciate the sacrifices that we are making to both our sanity and our time. This is true. I was just saying to Joe off the top that reading week is just about to kick off and <laughs> I guess they forgot that there are still classes because I couldn't get into the building this morning. So that was a fun start to my day. Yeah, it's not the way that you want to start your Saturday early morning. You know, it's weirdly not. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe, we thought we'd do a little something different with the news this morning, didn't we? We did because we've got some breaking news that I think we both feel like we need to address. <laughs> Definitely. So I think we should thank friend of the show, Hannah McGregor, for bringing this story to our attention. Mm -hmm. So the bookseller, which is a trade publication for UK publishing primarily, and unfortunately, because it's a trade publication, the articles are behind paywalls. So we've both read bits and pieces of this source article from different people commenting on it, but neither one of us has had access to the real deal. Just, just so ridiculous. <laughs> I recognize that there are reasons why we need to pay for certain pieces of information and it keeps people employed. But particularly in this area, I'm like, is this not a news item? Yeah. And the problem is that that's all I've read, right? I've read a whole bunch of news and blog reports on the original article, but not the original article itself. But anyway, the bookseller published this piece last week about how YA sales are falling. And the thrust of it is well, their title is Crowded Market, Poor Retailing, and, quote, Worthy Books, end quote, Behind Fall in YA Sales. So much problematic language. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just, like, expired into the mic. <laughs> she literally died into the mic over this story. Well, not only is there problematic language there, right, this idea of worthy books, which by which they really mean uh, realist YA, contemporary realist YA, and they particularly mean, well... My take from the way they have framed this is that they particularly mean quote-unquote diversity titles, right? They're you particularly betcha. talking about the sort of recent, I don't even think flood, the recent arrival on the market of these kinds of titles. One of the big problems with the piece and the way it was presented is that in the tweet that they sent out for this article, they used a big old picture of Angie Thomas. Yeah, that's what I noticed too. Yeah, author of The Hate You Give. Yeah, well, Angie Thomas noticed it too, because she was like, hey, why are you using my picture to talk about why YA books aren't selling anymore? And particularly to make a point that serious YA realist issue books aren't selling anymore when uh, I believe that Angie Thomas currently has the number one and number two spot on the New York Times bestseller list for YA. Mm -hmm. And if people want to jump back to our episode on The Hate You Give, at that point, I had referenced her celebration tweet that the book had been on the bestseller list for 95 weeks. It has now been on the bestseller list for more than 100 weeks. So if you're going to pick a picture of someone who's not successful, maybe don't give in to your racist, not-so-undertones. Yeah, so this is the thing. Part of my natural skepticism when consuming media is I think it's really important. <laughs> this is coming straight out of my academic writing class. It's very important to recognize what hegemonic narratives are being sold to us. And I'm particularly interested in that when we get told that something is over, 
right? Mm-hmm. Who's making such declarations? <laughs> and what is their background? And what are their motives? Yeah, like this week on Secret Feminist Agenda, Hannah was talking to our guest about this idea of declaring that Twitter is like over as an organizing tool, just as people of color are embracing it massively as an organizing tool, and it's getting results and getting people's like voice out there, right? That's what I mean about when we decide that a movement or a media or a type of literature is over, it very often conveniently coincides with the time that it stops being simply dominated by white people Mm -hmm. and particularly by white men. So what Hannah linked us to was this tweet thread from Chris McCrudden, and maybe we should link to it as well in the show notes, Joe, so people can find it. He does a thoughtful analysis of where the data is coming from, but he too comes to this conclusion that there's too much realist YA being published. And he thinks that part of the problem is that what we have seen up to now is a bump in YA sales because young adults, like not teens, are buying YA and they're buying particular kinds of YA, this sort of realist issue-oriented contemporary fiction, but that teens themselves prefer escapist YA. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm just not sure, like... Chris McCrudden is a very data-driven guy, and if you read that thread, you can see a lot of interesting breakdown of where he sees the numbers coming from, but I don't, he has not convinced me in this thread that the problem is realist YA, or that the problem is that there's not enough dystopia being published or enough sci-fi being published. I mean, we are definitely in a realist YA bump compared to, like, when the big YA books were, you know, Hunger Games and Divergent, but I'm not sure... I don't know. He makes this point in one of his tweets that we all thought that YouTubers were going to, quote, get people reading and that that turned out to not be true. And he's right that the kind of books published by primarily YouTubers are not sort of stick around successes. But he's ignoring things like when we talked about the nerdfighter community, when we talked about The Fault in Our Stars, and -hmm. how much of John Green's sales are driven by what is ultimately a YouTube community. I just, I think he's missing a big piece of the conversation, two big pieces. One, that there's not really any source for this argument that teens like something different. He, He has this distinction between like teens as like regular people and then like bookish teens and he thinks that bookish teens are the ones who buy like the realist stuff and like real teens are the ones who buy the other stuff and I'm did you get any kind of idea why he was making that distinction or how he was drawing that line um no (laughs) I mean no like I, I don't know if you did when you read the thread but I felt like he makes this big jump between we haven't seen a big sensation in the market since 2016 and therefore it's the fault of realist YA and I'm not sure how you argue that the hate you give hasn't been a sensation like I'm not I'm not sure how you defend that claim yeah I guess unless he's looking explicitly at book sales and the numbers aren't in the same league as something like the dystopian YA craze of back in the day. I mean, his ultimate tweet is that, uh, I'm going to quote him here, the trouble with focusing on your core audience, which is what YA has done, is that core market strategies do not deliver growth. YA can grow again, but to do so, it needs to appeal to casual readers, reluctant readers, and adults, not just to bookish teens. I don't disagree with him that a wide range, like publishing a wide range of things will attract a wider range of readers, but I disagree with his definitions. Yeah. And I disagree with his perspective on what makes something 
I don't know, man. There's an awful lot of genre fiction still being published in YA. Like, just walk into chapters, like the young adult section still proliferates with what I lovingly call divergent and Hunger Game knockoffs, right? Like books that are telling very similar stories. I don't think that the bottom has fallen out of that market. I think we have added this other layer. And, you know... There's a weird suggestion there that because Realist YA is doing well, or there's been an uptick in the production of that particular kind of YA, that therefore the other kind is suffering and therefore overall book sales are suffering. Whereas to me, the most simplistic explanation would be that there hasn't been a title in the other non-realist or like dystopian Mm -hmm. sci-fi that has really taken off. That's not an issue with realist YA. That's an issue with the titles being produced in the other side not being particularly noteworthy or not catching on. Well, and he also points out in the thread, and this is more for your side of the expertise, Jill, but he points out that YA adaptations don't deliver big numbers. And so he cites Love, Simon as making $66 million, The Hate You Give making $32 million, and Everything, Everything, uh, which we'll talk about soon, I'm sure, making $61 million. And he, he sees that as like, it's not driving a bump to book sales in the same way that every single person who saw The Hunger Games went out and bought the entire Hunger Games trilogy. I also wonder, I mean, this might be really like naive of me because I don't know a lot about how publishing works, but if you go out and buy The Hunger Games, you buy three books. But if you go out and buy Love, Simon, you buy one book. Yeah. Right? The structure of the dystopia sci-fi tend to emerge in series. What impact does that have on sales? Like, is it fair to look at all three divergent books versus a single realist YA text and like call those numbers the same? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I would say no. The other weird thing, if he's bringing movies into this equation, then you could argue that part of the causation of less interest in the dystopian side is that the movies have not done well for many years. I mean, maybe we're going to see with the forthcoming adaptation of what's that one called? It's the Knife of Never Letting Go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chaos Walking Trilogy. Yeah, so the chaos walking, we'll see whether or not that kind of hits big, which I don't think it's going to be because I've seen zero promotion for it. Mm -hmm. But I'd be very interested to know whether or not that kind of thing is then impacting because those divergent movies whimpered to an end. They sure did. People felt that the final two Hunger Games movies were disastrous and overdrawn, like drawn out over two films. So those are things that if you want to try to tie them back to book sales not growing, like movies have kind of shot themselves in the foot in that regard. Well, it seemed to to me like movies got really, really greedy about the teen audience for a while there. To me, that splitting the last Hunger Games into two movies was literally just like, give us money. (laughs) Yeah, because they saw that it worked for Harry Potter. Yeah. So they tried to replicate the same thing. And they were going to do the same thing with Divergent, and then it fell off a cliff. And the thing is, like, that last Harry Potter book, there's a ton going on, right? Like, it means it makes a lot of sense to divorce that into two texts. But Hunger Games, as much as I love it, it is not a complex and nuanced story. Like, you didn't need, you. I don't even think necessarily you needed three movies to tell that story, but you sure didn't need four. And I think people react to that kind of thing. It's like, well, I don't want to go do this, or I'll wait for rental, or I'll wait for streaming, you know? Yeah, there's a negative perception, particularly when the cost of movies go up, right? People are going to get a little bit more savvy with where they want to spend their money, 
But let's face it, the quality of these movies is not there. If that then negatively impacts book sales, and it also then makes people wary of optioning forthcoming books to turn into films, so the cycle then ends up kind of eating itself. The other really important thing to note about the original bookseller article is, so it's stating there's a 21.5% drop in sales of YA titles. That's the central thing to panic over in the article. But it's only print book data. It's oh. only print book data. It oh, doesn't come include... on then. <laughs> okay, I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just worth remembering that when we talked about The Fault in Our Stars, the year that the film was made, The Fault in Our Stars was the number one selling ebook. Mm-hmm. Not YA ebook, ebook, period. So I don't think that we have yet seen the data on youth reading habits. I don't think we have yet seen the data on who is buying ebooks right now. Like there is some early data, but I haven't seen anything recently on on what the market segmentation is of ebooks or audiobooks. I think there's been a huge renaissance of audiobooks in the last few years, judging by chatter, like social media chatter. I don't know how that has translated to sales. But yeah, you know, as someone who works in comic studies where the data is so profoundly skewed by our reliance on print figures that comics that are incredibly successful get cancelled for no good reason because no one's looking at the digital data. I'm really suspicious of sales numbers that don't include ebook or audiobook sales. Like I just, you're right, I get, I have the exact same reaction as you, which is I don't want to talk about this until you give me the real numbers. Yeah, I can't trust figures that don't include digital. Mm-hmm. Not in 2019, sorry, but no. No, and I was thinking about that today because of all of the books we've read for the show so far, I've already owned some of them, but any that I had to secure myself, if the library didn't have them, I bought the ebook, right? Like, that's my default move now in a way that it wasn't even three years ago, my default move to just buy digital. So... I'm not convinced that we have a really good perspective on how people are actually reading. I'm not convinced that the only people interested in issue-oriented realist YA are the so-called quote-unquote bookish teens. I'm not convinced that there's some kind of quote-unquote real teenager out there. And I, I think we need to talk about a drop in sales of 21%, but we need to know that it's a real drop in sales of 21%. And to know that, we need more numbers. Mm-hmm. But I would encourage people to reach out to the show if you have a theory or a comment or if you're an adult and you've got a bookish teen or a real teen, what are they reading? (laughs) Are they reading? Like, let us know. I'm interested to hear people's reactions to this. Definitely, because one of the things that I'm seeing is online, at least in terms of the conversation, is that it's a lot of adults talking to each other about what teens are doing, which, you know. What are the teens doing these days? Are the kids all right? Are they buying print? So yeah, I would love to hear more conversations around if you are a teen or the teens in your life, what does their reading life look like? And do they pick up a book like The Hate You Give or are they waiting for the next Divergent? Like, I'm really interested to know. And you know, Not just the movies dropped off in quality with both of those series, but the books did too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder to what extent the drop in interest in those kind of stories was just fatigue, right? Like we saw a lot of them for a long time. And maybe the same thing is going to happen with Realist YA. But my worry is always when we announce that a movement is over just just the second it starts to get the least bit actually representative of the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an implicit danger in that. It's huge. All right. Maybe we should talk about Umbrella Academy. Speaking of implicit dangers. 
There we go. I like the segue. I like it. (laughs) Okay. So right off the top, I think one of the things that we need to do is acknowledge the spoiler warning. So this is a spoiler heavy podcast in case people have not figured that out. But in case you're joining us because you're like, hey, Umbrella Academy, it's new. I'm excited. Brenna and I have read the first two graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And spoiler alert, the first graphic novel covers the entire first season of the Netflix TV adaptation. So we likely are going to be spoiling some version of that. So if you want to just enjoy the series for what it is, I'm going to encourage you to pause the podcast and come back to us when you've had a chance to check out those episodes. Because from what I've gathered, it's not an entirely faithful adaptation, but it's good enough that we will ruin the ending of the first season. And to be clear, we have neither one of us has watched the whole series yet. Joe has watched far more of it than I. I watched the first episode and a little bit of the second. Joe has watched the first six. So if you're listening to this and you're like, but they deal with that in episode seven, then definitely message us about it. But we don't know that right now. Yeah. And maybe don't take that tone with us. (laughs) Honestly, please just take any tone with us. We just want to be spoken to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, Brenna, what is this graphic novel series about? Okay, I'm going to try, and then I'm going to invite you to jump in and correct me or scold me at any point, because as I said to you via text yesterday, I found it hard to connect with this series, and I'm almost certain I missed something because I was confused a lot of the time. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So The Umbrella Academy is a comic book series that was published between 2007 and 2008, and the first limited series is called Apocalypse Suite, and then a second limited series was released called Dallas and I believe a third one is in process now. Yes or it may have just come out. Oh okay so the basic premise is that we're in an alternate history important to the second volume we're in an alternate history where John F. Kennedy was never assassinated and the Umbrella Academy is a sort of I think the tagline they're using for the series is like a dysfunctional superhero family. Yeah that's pretty up in the book at some time in the mid-20th century, 43 superpowered infants are born at seemingly random to unconnected women who previously did not appear to be pregnant. (laughs) So all of a sudden, 43 women around the world suddenly give birth to superheroes. And that must be a pretty traumatic experience. But anyway. But they're unimportant because we only care about seven. (laughs) That's true. It is true. So this one guy, Sir Reginald Hargreaves, he adopts seven of them and prepares them to apparently save the world. From what? No one knows. When we meet them at the beginning of Apocalypse Suite, like any good dysfunctional family, they have fallen completely out of contact with each other. And we meet them as they... Oh, yeah, that's why we meet them, because their dad dies or seems to. And yep. so they all reunite for the funeral. Yep. That's what I've got, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let me run down the characters then. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So there are seven children and Sir Reginald Hargreaves is a terrible abusive father who literally only cares about assembling the superpower team. He doesn't care about the fact that these are children and they maybe need nurturing or caring for. So he doesn't name the children. Their robotic mother, Grace, 
gives them names. So for the purposes of our discussion, I don't even know what to suggest. Should we call them by their monikers? Should we call them by their names? Probably names. <laughs> yeah, probably names. But it's weird because some of them some of them really embrace their number. Like I think of number five as number five. Like I can't even actually remember his real name. Oh, he doesn't have a real name. But I think of Vanya as Vanya, right? So like... Yes. Yes. Okay. So there are seven. Okay. So number one is Space Boy or real name Luther. Number two is the Kraken. His real name is Diego. Number three is the Rumor or Allison. Number four is the Seance or Klaus. Number five does not have a name. Number six is the Horror or Ben. He is the least important character because he dies as a child and we never discover how he died. Well, in the comic series... There's a monument to him out in front of the house, mm-hmm. but that is not present in the TV show. But he can summon monsters, even though he's dead. Like, he's still in it because he can summon monsters at the behest of Hargreaves, right? Even though he's dead? Oh, see, I didn't get that. I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes things are confusing, and the children are often drawn to look the same. Yes, so... I found this. Yes, okay, sorry. We oh, need to finish okay. the synopsis. Okay. Yes, and then number seven is Vanya. So they each have different powers. Except for Vanya. Except for Vanya. Vanya is the outcast. She is the one who does not have powers, and therefore she is always excluded and not allowed on missions. Well, and we also see Hargreaves's sort of abusive nature in his attempt to figure out her powers. Like, she goes through kind of hell, more so even than the others, I would say. Yes. So in this world, they battle all different types of super villains. At one point, Allison loses her arm to one of them and she gets a robotic arm. So this world is kind of steampunk futuristic. Yes. Like Luther, when he grows up to become an adult, he has the upper body of a, is it a chimp or an ape? Uh, an ape. An ape. And... That is not really explained, but it does give him, like, super strong powers. Diego, number two, is really good with knives. Allison can whisper lies to people to change their minds. Klaus has a number of different abilities in the graphic novels. He can levitate, he can change his form, and he can speak to the dead. Mm -hmm. Ben, as we mentioned, can summon demons or has body parts of demons. And they all live in this ginormous mansion with a chimpanzee butler who can speak. So it gives you a sense of the world. Like, it's very fantastical. It has a lot of futuristic technology. And it's got a bit of a wry sense of humor, but it's also very dour. It's very dour. If you're familiar at all with Dark Horse comics and the the kind of outlook that they tend to have... This is very much in keeping with Dark Horse's stable of comics. There's not a lot of hope here. There are no happy endings and is is bleak, is is very, very bleak. Yeah. And then in the second graphic novel, there's a pair of assassins who show up and they have comically oversized cartoon heads and people are constantly dying in the Mm -hmm. graphic novels as well. So the big arc of the first season is essentially how this family has fallen apart and part of the reason that I thought it was appropriate for us to cover is because it does flash back and forth between the past and the present but really none of these adults have moved into legitimate adulthood they're all still carrying childhood baggage Mm -hmm. particularly Vanya and particularly Luther Oh, the one thing that we haven't talked about is the fact that number five in both timelines looks exactly the same because he can time travel right So he is actually a 60-year-old man trapped in the body of a 13-year-old? Yes. Yes. (laughs) 
which kind of makes for a fun visual interplay because it's this young child surrounded by adults, but he's also, he's heavy drinking, he's very profane, <laughs> and he's very cynical because, well, he's not older than all of them, but he is quite a bit wiser. So he's the one who forecasts the end of the world with an apocalypse, and they can't figure out what causes it, but the entire arc of the first graphic novel is them sort of working to stop this while also dealing with their own issues and it's about three issues in that once again spoiler alert it is revealed that the agent of the apocalypse is Vanya herself and that she is actually incredibly super powered she undergoes a transformation at the behest of a character called the conductor of the orchestra Verdampton and he is a maniacal genius who wants to put together a orchestra with her as the feature violinist and she will be an agent of death so he radically changes her body and transforms her into an agent of death. Right. She can play music that destroys people and buildings. She ends up killing Pogo. She slits Allison's throat and nearly kills her. And then at the end of the volume, she is shot in the head by number five after she is duped by Klaus impersonating her father and reassuring her that he actually loved her. Well, no, actually. <laughs> Sorry, that's not true. He uh, essentially berates her and, and calls her a piece of trash and that he never loved her. And that's when they get the jump on her. Yeah. As we've said, it's very dark and grim in that fashion. But I do want to briefly talk about the art. Yeah, for sure. So we didn't say, though, we didn't say that one of the things that made this comic get a lot of buzz when it was first released is it's written by Gerard Way of the band My Chemical Romance. Yes. And there was a lot of anticipation and excitement about it, but also a lot of, is this just a guy playing at doing comics? But I think, mm-hmm. no, like I think he he's definitely demonstrated facility with the craft here. The art is by Gabriel Ba in his very first turn at sort of a mainstream title after having done quite a lot of indie comics previously and I think the art is quite I think it's very eye-catching yeah I was gonna say like the signature of the series is the art more so than in a typical comic I think and while I found it frustrating sometimes because the characters do all especially the male characters for me they're hard to tell apart um but in terms of the world building I think it's quite beautifully executed and I think if I had connected more with the individual characters I would not have had such a hard time with their visual representation. Okay so unpack that a little bit for me what was the barrier for you connecting with these characters? You get a lot thrown at you right from the beginning of the first issue. It's very true. I found the storytelling messy And I realized that that was my problem with it because I actually vastly preferred the second volume to the first. Oh, interesting. Okay. I'm just really into alternate histories that deal with the Kennedy assassination. I don't know why. I read a lot of them. I like them. So I was already sort of grabbed by the subject material in the second one far more than the sort of what I found to be a more kind of generic apocalypse story in the first volume. Yeah, those can get a little tropey and repetitive. If you read a lot of comics, you read a lot of world ending, and I didn't find anything in this version of the end of the world, with the exception of the visual representation of the white violin, which I found beautiful, like exquisitely beautiful. Yes. There wasn't anything in the storytelling that grabbed me. So we should clarify to people who have not read the graphic novel, Vanya is literally turned into a human violin. 
Yeah, it's beautiful and chilling. <laughs> She's on the cover of the mm-hmm. first graphic novel, which is very odd to me because it's such a huge spoiler. But yeah, but yeah, it's exquisite, and the artwork really is fantastic. It's I, I this is where I lack the vernacular to properly describe it beyond oh, it's kind of chunky with jagged edges like there's not a lot of rounded curves like people it's a lot of more straight lines angular angular thank Mm you Mm -hmm. which is very striking at one point you said that it reminded you of neil gaiman and at the time that didn't make a lot of sense to me but upon reflection it does remind me a lot of the sandman comics yeah and i said to joe when i say that it's not a compliment my feelings about Neil Gaiman. Can't say that sure when I'm drinking. Subject of a future episode, but yeah, I I think that the strength in this comic is in the art. It's what sets it apart from being a pretty generic apocalypse story. So, sorry to rewind to your first question. I think we get a lot of stuff thrown at us at the beginning, and for me, it was too much to keep all of those individual characters and backstories straight because they're not really fleshed out. I think that by the second volume, there's much more detail in sort of the motivation and who these characters are and how they interact with each other, which in fairness is pretty typical of comics, right? The thing about a long form storytelling mode like comics is you can take your time to develop the characters. So that's not an entire critique, but it did mean that for a lot of the first volume, I was like, wait, what's happening? Who's that? Where are we? Why is she doing that? Yeah. Did she just get shot in the head? Does nobody die? What is happening? <laughs> that was me reading. That's a, narr- that's a narration of me reading the comic. Yeah, the storytelling is very expedited. So, or sorry, I keep saying that. It's very expedited. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make I expedited a thing. It's work with me, people. Hashtag expedited. <laughs> the storytelling is very expedited in that first volume. So when I mentioned that Vanya gets turned into a living violin, that happens in the start of issue number four mm-hmm. of six. So you've barely begun to scratch beneath the surface of who this character is, and then she's already being mutated into a weapon of mass destruction by a generic villain in a weird space goalie conductor mask yeah yeah i read an interview with gerard way where he said that in a lot of ways dallas should come before apocalypse suite in terms of getting to know the characters and understanding like the motivation for everything that happens in apocalypse suite is really articulated in dallas and i think he's right and he's actually i mean he's pretty self-aware as a creator to recognize that Mm -hmm. and i would even suggest that if you're going to read both volumes anyway and you're going to read them both before you watch the tv show if I had to do over again, I would read Dallas first. I think I would have connected more clearly to the characters and I would have understood the stakes in Apocalypse Suite a lot better. Because my problem was that by the time I got to the climactic issue of Apocalypse Suite, I still wasn't really 100% clear on, well, the stakes ultimately. Mm-hmm. You basically just know that the apocalypse is coming and they've got to prevent it. And then they realize, oh, it's Vanya who's responsible for it. And we get a battle and then things are just wrapped up. It feels so fast. It's so fast. And whereas in Dallas, we really understand. And one of the things, we'll, I guess we'll talk about the series in a second. One of the things the series does well is folding in some of some more of Vanya's backstory into the apocalypse suite narrative. Because yes. in Dallas, we get a lot more of her backstory and a lot more of, it's not just like, she was the youngest and didn't have powers and was left out. It was like, that's not why she turns, right? You 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 get a lot more 
understanding of where she's coming from in Dallas, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, so Dallas is primarily focused on number five. Mm -hmm. He is revealed to be an assassin, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. He was rescued from the future by a corporation that deals with erasures and time discrepancies. And in the TV show, that character is played by Kate Walsh in a very unexpected fashion. You didn't get to that because it doesn't happen until midway through the season, but... Right. (laughs) Yeah, so he is recruited to go and deal with these different time discrepancies, and then he manages to work his way back into the present, I'm using that in quotations, to return and deal with all the stuff that happens in Apocalypse Suite. But Mm -hmm. it does a really interesting job of introducing... Not only new characters who complicate the narrative, so there's a pair of assassins, as I mentioned earlier, but it gives you this sense that the story has a greater sense of scope and longevity Mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in so doing, you really do get to unpack the motivations of each of the individual characters because they get launched across time and space and their connections to each other are challenged in different kinds of ways. Whereas in the first graphic novel, it's really just them coming back together after a long absence and saying, okay how do we be a team do we even want to be a team oh we've got to deal with this impending threat in dallas there isn't that same kind of threat like the assassination plotline almost seems secondary yes and i think the first volume is very plot 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 and the second volume is very all the other stuff and so if you're the kind of person who prefers the all the other stuff the second volume is a little bit more compelling that way and i also think the other reason that the second volume was stronger for me is those two assassins as nihilistic as they are as characters mm-hmm. they introduce humor that i found completely missing from the first volume and yes. um was a welcome relief even as bleak as the humor was it was at least some humor yes yeah And that becomes very important. So maybe Mm -hmm. let's introduce the TV show into the mix and see what we're dealing with. Sure. In October 1989, 43 women around the world gave birth. None of these women had been pregnant when the day first began. How much do you want for it? I have adopted six children. Gifted with abilities far beyond the ordinary. I give you the Umbrella Academy. Does anyone wish to speak? It was a monster. Everything about our family is insane. It always has Skirt? Oh, yeah, this. It's very breathy on the bits. Nice to see nothing's changed. I jumped forward and got stuck in the future. Do you know what I found? Absolutely nothing. When's it supposed to happen? In eight days. Oh, shit. There's someone out there who's trying to stop me from preventing the apocalypse. We need the full force of the Academy. Bingo. Yay, sisters. Yay, sisters. So the history of the adaptation is interesting. 
when the Umbrella Academy came out, it was to quite a lot of accolades. People, I think, were taken aback at how strong the finished product was. As you mentioned, I think people, they weren't certain whether or not Gerard Way was going to be able to pull this off. But I think when they saw the finished results, people were very taken. And I gathered it was also... A good seller. Well, they were really savvy about how they sold it. So the publishers, Dark Horse, had the artist and writer create a short story, kind of prequel, which they released on Free Comic Book Day, like the year that the comic was released. And so that created a ton of buzz. It ended up being the number one most sought after title for Free Comic Book Day that year. And so that was a super savvy move because it gave people a taste that this wasn't just going to be a bad celebrity crossover and really pumped up anticipation for what is ultimately not the kind of title that usually sells huge right out of the gate, right? Something like Umbrella Academy would usually need to take time to develop a following. Mm -hmm. So they were very savvy about the marketing. So based on, I'm sure, the success, but also the name brand recognition of being able to tie My Chemical no, yes, My Chemical Romance. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> off my game today. Uh, they optioned this as a film originally back in 2010, and it ended up getting lost in development hell. So they thought they had a really good script, but it just never really moved forward. And it wasn't until 2015 that it was announced that it was going to be reformatted as a television show. And then it was greenlit back in 2017, filmed last year in Toronto, and just debuted on Netflix as of last Friday, February 15th. So it's taken almost 10 years to turn this property into some kind of workable visual medium. And it was adapted by a guy named Jeremy Slater. And initially, I didn't really make the connection, but he's the guy who also adapted the Exorcist TV show that ran for two seasons on Fox a couple of years ago. Mm. Just as a side note, that series is really excellent, and it was unfairly punished by people because they thought that it was a standalone series. Spoiler alert, it does tie into the original Exorcist film, and I would highly encourage people to seek it out. That show, also interestingly enough, does really well with characterizations, but it does take its time to get to that point. Right. So it's that balancing of supernatural elements with character development that we're kind of seeing in this regard only with the added benefit of a Netflix creep. Because, <laughs> hello, folks, these episodes are once again 60 minutes long. I really feel like if I could change one thing about the media landscape and I wasn't allowed to just erase all the white guys, I think that my next move would be to hire an editor at Netflix. Because yeah. <laughs> they must not have one. Well, I think they throw money at productions and then they just check to make sure that the finished product looks suitable. And then they have to think about how they're going to market it. But they don't actually impose any kind of guidelines on, okay, we need these episodes to be coming in at 50 minutes, or we're going to be evaluating whether or not you need 10 episodes as opposed to eight and so on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, from the six episodes that I've seen, I would say that the series does a good job in really fleshing out these characters, but it does also often feel like it's padding things. Like, I don't think that these episodes need to be as long as they are, considering that these are not unfamiliar conflicts that we're dealing with. Definitely. I would agree with that based on what I've seen so far. So just to run through the list, 
So Luther number one is played by Tom Hopper, who savvy Game of Thrones viewers may recognize as one of the hot Tarly cousins. Diego has, okay, let's put it front and center. The television show did a great job in diversifying the cast. So whereas mm -hmm. the graphic novel is white, white, white. The mm -hmm. TV show introduces a number of racial minorities, which is so welcome. So mm -hmm. Diego has undergone a transformation from a bland blonde guy into a Hispanic guy. And he is played by David Castaneda, who I haven't recognized from anything else. No, me neither, but I never do. So <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> Allison, number three, The Rumor, is played by Emmy Raver Lampman, and she is now African-American, which is very helpful for distinguishing her from Vanya, who is played by Ellen yes. Page, because in the graphic novel, those were the two characters I had the most difficult with, because they both have shortcut hair. Yeah, that's true. At least in the comics, Space Boy is a, is, has ape body <laughs> that helps distinguish him from the others. Yes, they really decide to ground the proceedings in the TV show, so they make it a lot more realist. Mm -hmm. And I'm, again, putting that in quotation marks because we're not dealing with realist stuff at all. These are people with powers. We do still have a chimpanzee butler also. This is true. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, who is voiced by Adam Godley, and he's marvelous in that role. So working through the rest of the cast, Klaus is played by Robert Sheehan. And I figured that you would like him the best because he is a UK import. He was on Misfits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recognized him, and I do. I think he's good in the role. Like he, he plays a good, strung out dude. So <laughs> yes, we didn't clarify that Klaus is a drug addict because it helps him mm -hmm. to deal with the voices. Mm -hmm. But by far, Robert Sheehan, I think, is going to be the one who gets all the exposure because the role is juicy and eccentric, and he gets to play a lot of different kinds of fun shades mm -hmm. that I think Definitely. will really resonate with people. The other strong performer is number five, who is a little boy. <laughs> yeah. So Aiden Gallagher is the actor. They aged him up, hey, for the series from the, the comic. Yeah, I think they're supposed to be 13 in the TV show, but he looks probably closer to 15 or maybe 16. 16, yeah, I would say, yeah. So the other interesting tweak is that number six, Ben is absent entirely from the adult narrative in the graphic novels whereas in the tv show he appears as a manifestation of klaus's powers so he's played by justin h min and he actually gets to do stuff he's kind of the mm -hmm. the voice of conscience mm -hmm. and then rounding out the cast is colm fior as reginald hargreaves we do actually get both of the assassins from the Dallas leg of the graphic novels. So Hazel is played by Cameron Britton, who people will recognize from Mindhunter. And Cha-Cha is played by Mary J. Blige, because why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently she was attracted to the role because she would get to learn fighting skills, to which I say, Mary J. Blige, you are a treasure. <laughs> and then we also have Ashley Madakwe, who was on Revenge, and she is playing Detective Patch, who is Diego's ex-girlfriend. Right. Oh, I guess in the other character of note, spoiler, 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 there's a guy that Vanya meets and begins casually dating mm. named Leonard Peabody, who is played by John Magaro. And he is obviously the conductor in a different form that the TV show has opted to play the long con as opposed to just having the villain come out and say, hey, do you want to kill your family and ruin the world? Right. So you've only seen the first episode. What did you yeah. think of it? Um, 
I thought it was visually stunning. I think they did a really good job with the sort of alternate history, steampunk, I'm not quite sure what decade I'm looking at vibe. I really appreciated that aspect of it. You know, like the cars are all sort of like cars today, but not quite. The clothing is sort of like clothing today, but not quite, right? Like they, I thought they did a really good job of visually representing what it means to be an alternate history. Mm-hmm. We're very much back in that weird timelessness period, right? Like there's, totally. there's no internet, there's no cell phones. All the TVs are like weird cathode ray tube boxes basically (laughs) Mm -hmm. and yet we've still got relatively futuristic stuff like they're able to send space boy to the moon yes yeah so i thought they did a really good job aesthetically of representing that i was pleased with the casting for the most part like there was nothing that made me particularly kind of annoyed (laughs) i thought that all the casting was pretty true to the series Mm -hmm. i thought comfior was i always like him i love comfior I I know this is when you know we're a Canadian podcast because and all represent. the cast members were very excited about Comfior and Ellen Page and Ellen Page. Even though, as my husband Brian referenced, he was like, "Why does she always play such a dour, like want want character?" <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. But um, I thought Comfior really brings it. There is no warmth, right? Like I was oh, really God, impressed no. by his ability to be so cold. So I really liked him in the role. I liked all of the casting. And I thought the violence was incredibly well executed to have that very comic book vibe. This is reminiscent to me of something like the Scott Pilgrim adaptation, not in the way it looks visually at all, but in the way it so accurately represents the visual style of Mm. the comic on the screen, which as we've talked about is often something that just gets sort of forgotten right like it's like oh we're just adapting a narrative here this is very clearly an adaptation of the comic and i think it does that most effectively in the setting and the way violence is represented yeah and we should probably give a shout out to the directors of several of these episodes it's interesting they took an approach where they broke the series down across five different directors and each of the directors gets two consecutive episodes except for the first episode and the last episode which were directed by the same person oh that's an interesting approach yeah i think it works in terms of production because you can prep and shoot the same things back to back But one thing of note, if people are just going into this and watching the pilot episode, so it's directed by Peter Hoare, and he also directs the finale. He has experience directing the FX series Legion, which is another really great adaptation of a comic book. That's the one with Dan Stevens, where he's playing like a D-list character from the Marvel canon. He's Professor X's son. Right, right, right. But that series is renowned for its visual capacity. And I think that's most evident to me in the first episode diner sequence. Oh, yeah. Which was one of those moments when you know you're watching a Canadian series because ubiquitous Canadian diner employee is running the diner. You betcha. (laughs) So... This sequence finds number five going and just getting a cup of coffee at a, I think it's called Gridley's or Grizzly's Donuts. And it kind of looks like it could be right out of the Riverdale set. Totally. It's very candy-colored pastels, almost like a 70s aesthetic, but meets 50s. You know what it reminded me of? That very famous painting of the diner at night, the name of which is escaping me now. Oh, Do you know yes. the one I mean? Yeah, the one with Marilyn and Elvis. and It's very much that aesthetic. There's even a shot from outside where it's almost framed in the same way. Mm-hmm. But the way that the 
fight sequence unfolds. So number five is attacked by a plethora of assassins, and he uses his teleporting ability to just kill them all brutally. But the way that it's shot, even at the end of it, where you see the light fixtures swinging and they're covered in blood, it honestly looks exactly like Legion does. It's just very well done. Like It looks glossy in the mm-hmm, way that mm-hmm. you would not typically see on a network television show. And I think that it just amps up the production levels. Like It makes the series look very expensive. It looks and feels really yeah, cinematic. I didn't for one second sort of think, oh, I wish this was a movie and not a TV series, which you know often happens when something with the scope of this comic is adapted to small screen. So I, was, I think it was very well done. Mm-hmm. There is one other standout sequence that I wanted to highlight because nearly each episode that I've watched has one standout violent confrontation scene. They're often set to great musical choices, oh, or they're... that was what I yeah sorry no, no I just remember that ahead. I want no I just remember that I wanted to say how well done I think the music is in the series. There's a scene in the first episode. It's sort of an establishing shot of the family home where the mansion is cut in half and. It's Dancing by Myself, I think, is the song, right? And they're all dancing by themselves in separate rooms of the mansion. And it's aesthetically gorgeous. And also one of the reasons why I like the adaptation so much is because, for me, that introduced a kind of visual humor that is missing from the comic that made it a lot easier to get through the bleakness of the content. Yeah, so that that was the exact scene. Oh, sorry. No, no, because I think the fact that we both naturally gravitated to that, it highlights to me not just the strength of what a visual adaptation can do, but I think it also reinforces when people think about how best to grab audiences attention and to reel them in something like that scene so essentially what happens is all of the siblings have been fighting and they're in disagreement they've all gone to their own individual bedrooms luther puts on tiffany's i think we're alone now oh that's the one yeah sorry and i added a different song in my head (laughs) (laughs) and he just begins dancing and the sound permeates through the walls and everybody else can hear it and I think part of the reason you said it's dancing by myself is because they all dance by themselves. (laughs) But it's just such a great sequence because you get insight into each of their characters Mm -hmm. because they're all dancing in their own unique way. But it also ties them together because they have this shared experience. But then it pulls back visually and it's like a dollhouse where you can Mm -hmm. see each of them dancing in their own rooms it visually connects them but it also reinforces the fact that these are children who Mm -hmm. have stunted growth and they're all trying to work through these childhood traumas with their horrible father and they're now back into this situation it's great storytelling because it's a shorthand symbolic route to help you to understand how these characters are connected. But it's also just, it's a great scene. Like, it's so fun. It's so fun. You get a really clear sense of just how similar they all are. Like, they all share a trauma that no other person has gone through, right? And so as much as they all depart to their own rooms in solitude, they're angry or they're sad, all of a sudden they're, like, united in this visual scene It doesn't take anything away from the individual isolation they're feeling, but it reminds you as an audience member that their individual isolation is like profoundly shared. Oh, it's just, it's such a good scene. Mm -hmm. And apparently the director had to fight to get that scene in because originally this was 
this is another one of those things where he was dismissed as saying like, well, we're going to have to do that all in, in FX. It's going to be expensive. Do we really need this? Like, it's not an action sequence. What does it do to develop the story? And it wasn't until he broke them down. And then when he showed them the final result, everybody just immediately got it. Yes, because it's not an action sequence, but there are enough of those. It is totally necessary to the tone, I think, of the series and to what makes the tone of the series, as I said before, I think better even than the tone of the source material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will finish watching this series, which that's a big thing for me. (laughs) (laughs) to commit to finishing literally anything these days. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because I wouldn't have pegged you as the typical audience member for this, but I think it's going to appeal to a bunch of different types of people because it's not just a superhero show. It's not just a dysfunctional family show. It's got a number of really good elements. And I think, to Mm -hmm. be honest, the thing that's keeping it back is primarily the fact that these episodes just needed just that bit more of a cut because there's a couple of episodes where they still have a great fight scene but that's that's it Mm -hmm. like the rest of it is just Diego dealing with the cop and their unspoken falling out as a romantic couple it's Luther and Allison talking about how they should or shouldn't it's Vanya being like oh I feel left out so it's hitting a lot of the same marks I will say that things get a lot more interesting when more of the Dallas plot line starts to come in around episode four and five and then episode six you can start to feel like okay They need to hit the gas and they're really starting to move towards the conclusion of book one. Like you can see them really going for, okay, now Vanya needs to start her descent into evil and the apocalypse is looming. We're only now three days away and so on. I think in general, Netflix would do better to trust its audience more. It's interesting to me that ultimately the media service that invented binging, right, Mm -hmm. doesn't understand how binging works. And so often where Netflix creep is its most frustrating is when we get this repetitive reminder about the same plot moments, the same relationship beats over and over again in these series. And I just want to shake Netflix and be like, you guys, like, you know, we're all watching this in one sitting, right? Like, you don't need to do this. Well, and the weirdest thing is, is that when you read interviews with showrunners, they'll say, I always envisioned this as an eight hour movie or a 10 hour movie. And it just doesn't make any sense to me because then when you watch the series, you're like, okay, but you're mm-hmm. replicating a bunch of stuff from episode two in episode mm-hmm. three and four. Like, we get it yeah you're right it's a not trusting of the audience and it's very frustrating Mm -hmm. do you have any final thoughts on umbrella academy i don't i think it's worth checking out for people and um yeah okay do you have a ya bingo bingo not a good bingo i mean child soldiers right not bad yes (laughs) I think we could also go with dead parents and also bad parents. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Confior's really representing. He does so well. (laughs) I do think actually one of the other things that the TV show is doing well is they give the mom, who is, we have not said this, she's a robot. Right. And they give Grace quite a bit more to do and they examine her relationship with Diego and how she provided that nurturing component, which was really absent from the father. Actually, one of the things I love, again, in that dance sequence is that the mom is also there. She's not dancing. No, because she lacks any capacity to understand human reactions. 
right? And so it's perfect because like all of her kids are having these sort of moments of isolation represented through dance. And she is, I believe, making muffins. Yes. <laughs> she does quite a bit of cooking. <laughs> yep. Okay. So before we announce where we're going next, Brenna, where can people find you on the internets? Uh, you can find me at Brenna C. Gray on the Twitters. Right. And where can they find you, Joe? My Twitter handle is at B stole my remote. That's B as in the letter B. And don't forget that you can always tweet us about the show using the hashtag HKHSPod. We check it obsessively. So if you're really mad at us about something or you like us or you're bored, feel free to come and chat YA with us on the hashtag. Yes. Or if you want to send us something a little bit longer, you can reach us at HKHSPod at gmail.com. Yes. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. We have two lovely five-star reviews on the Canadian iTunes and one on the U.S. iTunes, and we would like more. (laughs) Yes, they don't have to be five stars, but it would be nice to get more ratings. I mean, they do. They do have to be five stars. Okay. okay. So we are dipping our toes back into speculative YA with our next pick. We're trying to keep it timely and relevant. So, Brenna, I don't know whether or not to apologize but we are going to be exploring the mortal instruments. It's kind of shocking to me that I've read as much YA as I have, and I'm as online as I am, and I've never read Cassandra Clare. So it's probably good that you're making me do this. Yeah, so (laughs) we're going to be checking out the first book, City of Bones, and we're going to be watching, spoiler alert, the terrible movie adaptation. (laughs) And we're also going to be watching an episode or two of Shadowhunters, which is the TV show adaptation in time for the debut of the final back half season. So, yeah. Mortal Instrument fans, this one's for you. Fantastic. And until then, I shall see you on the page, Joe. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. (laughs) 